Um, if you have a Bible, could you turn to uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Mark 1. Um, I think it's true to say that we are living in really crazy times. Is, is it just me? Or when you take a moment to just pause uh, and you start to think about the myriad of different things that are going on on planet Earth right now, it is... I mean, I, don't want, I, I know I'm an enthusiast, so I don't want to overstate and move into hyperbole, but it feels a little unprecedented in, in my lifetime. I mean, just think about it, the, the amount of things that, honestly, not just are crazy, but could be causing division in this world right now. Just take a moment and think about some of those things that are happening. Uh, for example, I mean, let's start with the big one, politics. I mean... <laughs> The amount of division that could be happening, um, depending on how you vote politically, is, is actually pretty tragic, right? In my view, the, the shift away from a kind of mutual respect for different viewpoints to a absolute volatile, explosive demonizing of different political parties is, is really, really sad, I, I personally think, in a democracy where we're meant to be sharing these ideas and actually coming together. So in the arena of politics, there's a huge ability or kind of potential for division. Think about science. It's funny, isn't it? Science for many years has been this great savior of mankind. And now it's like, well, do you believe the vax works? Or do you believe it doesn't work? It's like, I, I don't know. I have no scientific ability to know what I think about that. What do you think about masks? You know, what type of mask? You know, suddenly science has become this very divisive thing. It's weird. Um, we think about the media. Coming from Britain, the BBC, you know, we kind of have one main <laughs> media outlet which most people just trust and listen. But now, goodness, you think, was, were we being brainwashed? You know, there's this absolute array of different media outlets and you think, well, where, where do you go to get the truth? Is there such a thing as truth? And so even depending, you know, if I were to say, hey, what news app do you use? I promise you there'd be a nervousness in saying it. Because you don't know if you say this one, if they're going to go, oh, you're one of those, are you? And you're like, well, it's just, it's just one way. I'm trying to find out what's happening in the world. You think about the potential division between like city dwellers in the US and rural countryside dwellers. You know, we, we go to Montana. It's a great time. It's very different. And there's strong opinions about city places. And, you know, you just think, oh, I, I thought we could all be different, but kind of get on. But it just feels charged, right? <laughs> exactly. I, for the first time, I'm like having to deal with like frustration towards other states. I won't name other states, but there's certain states where dear friends are moving to. And they're like, oh, it's great over here. And I'm like, great. And I'm like, well, it probably is. Um, but suddenly, the United States feels a little bit kind of not, not quite as united in a way, right? Or even within states, as people leave one part of one state to go somewhere else because that's almost like moving a state. And suddenly, I'm talking to pastors who are dealing with frustrations or people with frustrations in one part. And I'm like, well, I thought they'd all come to your part of the state. And they're like, no, no, they've all left our part. And I thought they got, you know, 
And there's this sort of within state. We get the news about the masks, but then it's like, but, but what about the city? It's not just the federal or the state level, it's what does the city? Man, anyone here resonating with this? When you actually take a moment and you think about this, and then you have ongoing things that could cause division, like gender. What do we think about gender? What about race? What about police? Even something like the police, which in my head was always just like the police, right? And now it's like, no, 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 what do you think about the police? So just to lift our spirits at the start of this day, but we have to live in that reality. I mean, honestly, even within churches, I mean, goodness me, amidst all of those other areas, I mean, I won't ask for a show of hands who's listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, but it's one of the most listened to podcasts amongst many different ways in which in the last few years, the kind of exposing of really unhealthy cultures and particularly leaders has just come up. So unless you're living on the moon, I'm sure you are aware of this as a reality. And so I know many church members who are no longer going to churches and they're like, well, I don't trust our leaders. Frankly, my life feels more balanced as I'm not always rushing to church all the time. I feel like there's a resetting happening. I have so many conversations with people. I'm like, wow, it sounds like maybe there's some understandable reasons there. And then as a pastor, <laughs> I'm having lunch with so many pastors who are quitting. I, I've told you this. Like, I now know 10 in San Francisco who have all left their church, all left the faith, all had an affair. And I was looking last week at three buildings for us. And I suddenly realized, oh, the reason I'm looking at these buildings is because there's no longer churches in them. One building I was looking at, the pastor had 250 people pre-COVID and now there's 15. And everything's just gone. So, so even pastors, it's like there's this division between you know, mem- church members and pastors. And So where do we go, friends? Where do we go when almost anything that we would talk... Let's not even get into sports, okay? But where would we go... Where do we go? How do we, how do we move forward? And here is the good news. When we are in a time like that, there is only one person that I think probably we all want to talk about. There's probably only one person that really ultimately brings hope. There's only one person that even when he's a bit mysterious and challenging and difficult, somehow it's still a good thing. And his name is Jesus. So today we are going to start a series looking at Jesus, just Jesus, in an age of deconstruction and disappointment and division, where do we go? Well, there is only one person that I want to spend my primary energy looking at. Because he's endlessly fascinating and endlessly curious and endlessly both in the work of deconstructing your viewpoint and then reconstructing. He's the king of both. It's Jesus Christ. He's unlike any other. And today, we're going to look at Mark. And um, you might think, well, why Mark, Tom? I don't know if you know this, it's interesting that Mark, of all the Gospels, for many centuries, was seen as the kind of puny younger brother, right? Oh, we don't bother with Mark. All the great theologians looked at the other ones. And then about 200 years ago, amongst the academic scholarly world, there became an overwhelming consensus that Mark was almost certainly the earliest of all the Gospel accounts. And that actually Mark, in that sense, was therefore incredibly important. And Mark, in the academic world, has gone over this, he's gone from like the puny younger brother to like celebrity status. In, that, in the scholarly world, Mark is, is this, this, this gospel 
that now is hugely spoken about and revered and, and poured over. There's a few reasons specifically why I want us to look at Mark in this season. Some of the themes of Mark, I think we might have them up here. First of all, the theme of, of, of suffering. Okay, almost certainly, and I'll mention this again in a minute, that the main people, the, the original audience of Mark were Roman Christians. And if you know anything about what was happening in Rome at the time of, of, this, of this account, there was a guy called Nero. And man, if we think at times the government in different countries that we're involved with is, is tricky, just read about Nero. Um, but let's just say for the moment, their lives were very difficult. These Roman Christians were experiencing tremendous suffering. And so as we experience some level of pressure and suffering, maybe not of the order of them, but nevertheless real, you will see yourself in these pages. You will realize why the emphasis of John Mark, as he wrote this, wasn't just on this general account of Jesus. He, it was pastoral. You know, it's personal. He wanted these specific people who were really in danger of just giving up and feeling so crushed and confused and divided. He wanted to bring hope to them and power, a sense of unity and power. And so he just goes for it. He's like talks about suffering a lot and he, he doesn't pretend it's not happening as some of us do. He says, no, it's real. It's part of the deal. It's also perhaps the most Jesus-focused of all the Gospels. What I mean by that is you will notice Lots of the characters that you're used to hearing about, right? John the Baptist and others, they, they're just mentioned super briefly. I love that little note. Why? Well, it's because John Mark is like, <clears throat> do you know what? I just really want to focus on Jesus. The other characters are important, but I want, I want you, a reader, to be mainly above all the other characters thinking about Jesus. So Mark is incredibly brief. as a, He's very concise. There's no fat, you know? He just gets straight down to the meat. And you're like, hey, I know this passage in another gospel and there's loads more on that bit. And John Mark's like, doesn't matter. Let's get to Jesus. Let's get to Jesus. Let's get to Jesus. That's his style. It's urgent. It's immediate. It's, it's like punchy. Third emphasis, you'll, you will notice in this gospel much more of an emphasis on action and character more than the teaching of Jesus. Who here sometimes gets a little bit sick of lots of words being a bit cheap in life you know I am I at times I can get so like I just heard it a hundred times stop it and I think many of us in the states at the moment feel a bit like that I don't really want to hear another kind of just stirring speech I need to see someone and almost know them as a person and let their actions and their lifestyle and their character speak 10,000 times more than flashy, nice platitudes. That's what I'm craving. And Mark knows that. He's a genius. He cuts out a lot of the talking and just says, look at the person. Look at the person. Feel what it would have been like to feel around Jesus. And I tell you, when you're under it, often you don't want lots of words. You just need to be with someone who you think, this person gets it, and yet this person has hope. We're also going to see the humanity of Jesus. We see in these pages that he weeps, he laments, he's, he's confused at times, he gets angry, he gets frustrated, he gets very joyful. So if you think of Jesus as this kind of like Zen-like Buddha person who never has any kind of like emotion, man, you're going to see again and again this human Jesus. Yes, the Son of God, divine, but so human. 
which is fascinating and deeply encouraging. Anyone here <laughs> sometimes get a bit, you know, do you sometimes feel a little sad when you see your own lack of emotional stability? Yes, I do, and I did last night. You know, uh, and I just look at Jesus and I think, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Mark, for showing me a Jesus who doesn't look down his nose on emotions. He's so real, so human, so earthy. It's almost shocking at times. We're going to see that. We're also, though, going to see the authority of Jesus. Say authority. authority. Now, that is not a popular word right now. <laughs> I mean, man, our appetite for authority is at probably an all-time low. But Jesus, we're going to see here this theme, the authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. His authority gets him in trouble. He is not the bandana-wearing, recycling, gentle Jesus who roller skates and is super kind all the time. I mean, he is super kind. But he gets in the grill of the religious authorities again and again. And it's his authority that is one of the main reasons that people ultimately crucified him. So that's going to be interesting for you and for me. At a time where we feel like, oh, I struggle with that a bit. I struggle to come under authority. But we're going to look at the lordship of Jesus and what that actually means. It's a huge theme. And also we're going to see another huge theme, trust. We use the word faith a lot. I've tended recently to use the word trust, which is an equal translation of the word faith. Faith can become a bit like numb in my head, this religious word. Trust. Trust. I know for me, continuing to trust people and to trust Jesus, man, that is not automatic for me. It's a huge theme. Finally, there's a huge theme in here, particularly in the first half of silence. Jesus repeatedly saying, be silent. You've seen me do stuff, but be silent. And again, I think in this time where actually there is so much noise, there is so much going on, I think that's going to speak to us. It's going to help us understand why this is an important part of this. So Josie, could you come up, my lovely, and read um, Mark 1. Can I encourage us to stand? I know it's a, I think the the word of God, we believe it has authority. And I think there's something about physically standing that just kind of shows that we are taking it seriously. Um, Josie, would you read Mark 1, verse 1 to 8? John the Baptist prepares the way. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, 
but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Great. Thank you so much. Do you take your seats? Okay. Uh, I, there's so much in these eight verses. I, you know, one of the, the biggest jobs of a teacher is to actually whet your appetite so that when you leave here, you are more hungry to get into it. It's not about trying to give all of the answers or this monologue of truth, although I hope it is truth. But that, that you go away going, yeah, yeah, I want to get into that. Um, I think, when I look at these opening eight verses, if I was to try and summarize what, for me, I think most strikes me, is that it seems that the writer, John Mark, is wanting, what's the original writer's original intent, intent with the original audience? That's a great thing, like, thing to practice when you come to Scripture. What's the original writer's original intent with the original audience, okay? That's the, the best way to try and get to what is actually happening. And I think John Mark, in these opening eight verses, amongst other things, the thing that strikes me is he seems to be wanting to communicate that there is power for those who feel powerless. I think that's a major thing that's going on here. He wants, in verse after verse, to communicate to them, do you know what? There is, there is real power despite feeling powerlessness. And I think that's, uh, we're going to look at that in just a moment, but a couple of things just to bear in mind as we get going with this. Do we, anyone here know anything about the author, Mark? Anything that, that, that you know about this guy who wrote this gospel? Well, it seems very likely that he is John Mark. And if you read the book of Acts, John Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. And Barnabas... And Saul were like BFFs, okay? They were really close. And these power team were zooming through the Middle East in the early church, just crushing it in terms of starting these little communities of the Word and the Spirit. They were like inseparable. But Barnabas had, I think his cousin, his cousin was this guy, John Mark. And what happens is, it's really interesting, if you read the book of Acts, it talks about this. There's this awkward moment where John Mark, who wrote this gospel, basically bows out of the trip. He bails on Paul, Saul, and Barnabas. Now, obviously, because Barnabas is his uncle, he's kind of like fairly cool about it. But Paul gets really miffed, as we would say in England, cheesed off, angry. And it actually causes this long-term rift between two of the most important people in the whole of the New Testament. So just think about that for a moment. This is interesting. This is why it's important to do the hard work of knowing about these ancient manuscripts, the original source text. So the guy who wrote this gospel almost certainly caused the breakup of two of the most important leaders in the early church. Can you imagine how awkward that would be if you ever met someone who you really, really admire? And then it's because it's of you, because you tap out on one of the journeys, that this guy's like, Paul's like, I am, I'm, I'm never going to work with him again. You know, I, 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 I like Tanner, but I'm never, ever going I'm, to... I'm, if you've got Tanner, I'm not going anywhere near you. This has actually happened. So the guy who wrote this... This is so interesting. The guy who wrote this gospel had this very unique, uh, painful moment in his life that would have shaped him. I wonder... This is a little speculation from Tom Shaw. If that's partly why he doesn't go on about many other human leaders in this book. He just keeps going on about Jesus. Maybe he's like, yeah, I've tasted human leaders who aren't Jesus. 
And they can really hurt you. You know, I don't know whether, whether Paul was right to react that way. The Bible doesn't really cast judgment. But what I'm saying is the author of this book knows the pain of human leaders who get it wrong, potentially, or who get it right, but they are in a way that's dramatic and sort of volatile. So that's really important that you realize, because that's going to come through again and again. But here's what's also interesting is the original audience of this book, Roman Christians, they were not Jews. They were Romans. They were not just Italians, they were Romans, okay? They were like in the prime empire of the world at that point. To say they had a strong sense of national identity would have been an understatement. They are following Jesus, but now because they're following Jesus, they are almost certainly going to be under excruciating persecution because the Roman Empire, Emperor Nero, was persecuting them to the point of even setting them on fire as human torches whilst they were still alive. And they knew that. They knew that for them to follow this Jesus was going to mean that their kind of, um, their closeness to their national identity, their, their association with this thing that they'd loved, was going to have to be seriously put under scrutiny. Again, as we live in a time where many of us feel, I love this country, and we're not obviously experiencing anything like that, but as this country moves in a potential direction more and more and more, things that were kind of a sense of, this is who I am, this is my national identity, are shifting and changing for all of us. And that's why this book is going to speak to us, because the author has known what it is to go through very real pain, and the original audience know what it's like to feel, man, I, I thought my life kind of made sense. I'm part of this Roman thing. Everything's strong and mighty. Here I am. And suddenly, if, if I'm going to choose the Jesus way, that could mean that this entire previous sort of identity system is now turning against me. And that is really scary. But actually, I think there's echoes of that even in the times in which we live now. So I'm going to look at, I think, just two minutes on each of these, five ways that in that setting, John Mark so kindly, so fatherly, in the way that he lifts up the original audience and us today, who would have felt powerless, who would have felt everything I thought was strong and clear and everything's falling apart. Me following Jesus means I am potentially going to lose my life. Certainly mean, means that my previous Roman friends are no longer going to like me. And, and John Mark here, I think, is wanting to say, hey, you feel very stripped down, very powerless, and I'm going to lift you up. Every single sentence is going to count, okay? So we're just going to quickly whip, whip through the first eight verses, and I'm going to show you how each of them, I think, has this theme of bringing power to those who feel powerless. Okay, first then, a setting of power. Verse 1, in the beginning, or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Anyone here want to shout out what that sounds like? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus. Does that ring any bells? Does that sound similar to any other part of Scripture? Genesis 1. Thank you, Billy. Yeah, it doesn't actually say in the beginning, but it's so obviously that John Mark, in this opening verse, is wanting to communicate to them, hey, 
You know the beginning of the whole of the Bible, Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What he's doing to this people who feel so stripped down and weak, he's saying the coming of Jesus is every bit as important as the very beginning of the entire created cosmos. It's amazing. He's using this literary device so that they understand, oh my gosh, I may feel in my life like my Roman identity, my sense of national identity that was so strong and clear and a source of stability, that is being ripped away from me and I feel disorientated, I feel weak, I feel vulnerable, I feel like things are shifting. And he's saying, but do you understand that this Jesus that you are now united with, his entrance into planet Earth is as important as the very beginning of everything when God flung stars into space, when he started to spin planets that we now know about. He's saying the coming of Christ is that important. He's just, John Mark just goes for it. He doesn't want them to have any kind of victim mentality. He's like, yes. The things that you used to rely on, the things that gave you a sense of strength, they are crumbling before your eyes. And that is hard and that is difficult. And some of you here today, you will feel things that you used to rely on. Things that felt strong and gave you a sense of context and identity and a sense of stability. There is no doubt that God, at some point in his life, will go to war with that. You see, it's not wrong to want like a stable setting and context and identity in your life. That's not a wrong desire. The problem is when we try and find that in anything other than Jesus. So I wonder what it might be for you. What is the thing, the label, the identity, the setting that you unconsciously have for yourself that makes you feel secure? I think the obvious thing John Mark wants them to to come to terms with is that their Roman national identity is, is no, it's no longer a place that they can rely on to feel secure. Maybe it was being in the workforce and being good at in your workforce. Maybe it was having certain friends around and that's shifting and changing. Maybe it was being in a city that felt <laughs> kind of, you know, familiar and, and comfortable and in some ways made sense. And you're now here in San Francisco and maybe you like it, but it feels very different. And there is that sort of churning and that sense of like, oh, I think I'm meant to be here. But it does feel kind of unsettling and like things are shifting. Man, you know, the the solution, our flesh wants to go back and to try and make things secure humanly. But what John Mark says is, no, no, actually, although it's uncomfortable, it's a gift. It's a gift. When you feel that sense of things shaking and shifting and, oh, you know, I look at my kids growing up all the time and, and I'm, I'm used to relating to them in one way and then suddenly they're becoming young adults and before I know it, they'll, they'll be probably gone and there's those, don't worry Dave, that's not a hint, uh, but there's, there's this constant shifting in our lives and there's this constant unconscious desire in us to find stability in anything other than Jesus. He's saying, no, no, I won't let you do that. It, it could be your health, it could be your finances, it could be the fruitfulness in your workplace. I know what it's like to have seven years of absolute plenty and then in a heartbeat, on one specific day, God changed the season and suddenly everything became difficult. I remember it vividly. God is God. He is sovereign and he will orchestrate those things. So where do you feel loss? Let me ask you that question. 
Because normally it's a mix, right? Normally, because God's kind, there's things in your life that feel like they're bringing me a strength, sense of strength. But in this area, Tom, if I'm really honest, this does feel like things are shifting and changing. And what this says is, there is power as you start to find your context, your setting, your identity in the context of Jesus Christ, whose presence in your life is the unchanging one. The unchanging one. I am very tempted to self-deceive, not to get into whole Enneagram stuff, but for whatever reason, my kind of MO growing up in a mixed family environment was there was some great stuff and some difficult stuff. My, my MO was kind of to pretend everything's great. But actually, the reality is this life is a huge mix of, of blessing and battle, of difficulty as well as great stuff. And in my 40s, I'm finally coming awake to see, oh, that is actually true. That is, this situation is reality. And it's, it's taken me a lot of hard work, the kindness of God, a lot of friends cheering me on. So let me ask this question. Are there any areas in your life where even today, just there's a reality check moment? where God just wants you to see maybe, yeah, there is some painful shifting of things happening in your life, but in the beginning, Jesus Christ, the unchanging one brings power where nothing else can. Secondarily, though, he moves on, but with, I think, the same agenda in verse 2. He then says this, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, why is John Mark now talking about this guy Isaiah that they probably would not have heard of? These Roman Christians who weren't Jewish. It seems that he's wanting them to understand, again, as your national identity for them, the thing that is being stripped down, as that is falling away, it's crucial that you find power and security in a new story. That as a Christ follower, you're actually part of a new family. Now, praise God, we have human families, which we're grateful for. But he's also saying, I want you, O oh Roman Christians, as things shift and change, to know that there has been this kind of incredible sort of protection of power that God has always mercifully given to his people, even when it feels wobbly and shaky and vulnerable. And he says, there's this guy, Isaiah, and he quotes Isaiah. He says, there's two, these two situations where the people of God were going through a vulnerable situation. In verse uh, two, it says, behold, I send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way. That's a quote from the book of Exodus. Malachi ref references it. It's when the people of God, Israel, have come out of a time of consistency and slavery, and they're now in a, in, a, in a sort of wilderness time, and they're experiencing an exodus, which would have felt very vulnerable. And what he's saying is, do you remember that when that happened, God sent a promise of a kind of semi-divine type messenger who would protect you and look after you? He's saying that is actually the people that you're part of. The only thing that's really stable isn't your Roman citizenship, isn't the Roman Empire you're part of. You're part of a family now that has always known protection, even in times of wilderness, exodus, 
things shifting and changing. If you go back to the original story where, where God says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way, that was to a people who felt, again, absolutely disorientated. They were literally in a desert. They had come out of a lot of familiarity and God was saying, I'm going to literally send like an angel, like a divine type figure. It's a bit mysterious whether it's an angel or even Jesus pre-incarnate. Who will look after you? Who will protect you? Who will be there for you? So again, it's actually, you have to work a little bit to understand why he's doing it. But when you realize, oh, okay. So again, John Mark is writing to these Roman Christians where everything's shifting, everything's changing. And he actually has an agenda why he's saying, I know you feel bereft of that which gave you security, but that's always been the way of God with his people. To strip them down in one way, but at the same time, to bring security and protection of power in the next breath as well. So again, let me ask you this question. Where do you feel vulnerable? Are there areas in your life where you think, oh, Yeah, I do resonate with that situation where things feel more stripped down. And I'm I'm tempted to feel, is God actually genuinely even there? I'm interested by the word that Tim had a few minutes ago that maybe people here who in the just somehow in the last season, honestly, just your trust and our trust and faith that Jesus really is our ever-present help in time of need. You know, the Bible says that he will not test us beyond that which we can bear. There's times where I read that verse and it almost irritates me. I'm like, really? Is that really true, Jesus? Because I feel like I'm right at that max. But what this is saying again with this fatherly, kind, merciful tone is to these people is, no, no, just as God looked after his people when they were first taken out of Exodus, he will look after you. He will protect you. And you can find your sanctuary in Jesus alone. He is the only safe place. Where do you try and feel safe apart from in Jesus? Where do you try and feel safe? Even now, I bet you you've got some conscious answers and then there's some unconscious answers. One of the interesting places I've realized I try and feel safe is through performing for my kids. Like, I have this haunting fear that at the end of like either my life or their life or when they're at home, that there will come a judgment from my children <laughs> of like, this is the marks out of 10 I give you, Dad. Boop, you know, and it won't be high. I realize this, you know, I can think I'm loving my children and I adore them, but mixed in with that love can be like a fear of like, well, what happens if I damage them? What happens if that thing I did that I didn't want to do or the thing I didn't do that I should have done comes back to haunt me? And so what this, what this can mean is that rather than living with a sense of security that Christ loves me and Christ is for me and he knows I'm fragile and weak, my actual natural place of trying to feel protected and safe is in performing for the kids. I got a bit grumpy last night, I have to admit, and, um, and then afterwards, I was like, I mean, it was in private. Well, it was Josie. But um, it wasn't at Josie. But uh, she witnessed my slight moment of grumpiness. 
And then afterwards, I was like, oh, gosh, I wonder if the kids heard or, you know, like... And, 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 I, and I realized that in some ways, my, my MO can be to go and endlessly check everything's okay with them. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, repairing things with your children's important. But I know for me, that can become my God. That can become my replacement to feeling protected and safe in Christ, who knows that I will surely at times make mistakes. Now, don't hear, mishear what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't go and make things, sure things are right with your kids. But you know what I'm saying? If you've ever been in that place as a parent where, or just with friendships, you, you're needing to know everyone is cool with you all the time. And that becomes the place you feel protected. You want to feel protected and safe. And what he's wanting to say to them is, hey, listen, even, even Isaiah spoke about a kind God who would protect you. So even today, do you need to know that his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient despite your and my imperfections. Maybe you just need to just drink that in afresh today and say, no, I, know, I need to know it in my bones. In a moment, we're going to offer prayer for anyone who wants it. Maybe you just, you know, you need to know that not just in your head, but like in your bones. The grace of God. The interesting context of verse 2 and 3 is that God's protect, he's sending his love and his protection on, on Israel, even though the context is that they have sinned again and again and again. They haven't been good people. They've been bad people. They do not deserve the kindness of God. Thirdly, there's a protection, sorry, there's a, a wilderness of power. You see here in verse uh, 4, it says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Again, when you think about why is John including this, I think John wants them to understand that wilderness times in your life that we naturally want to pull back from and reject and get out of as fast as possible. I think part of what the reason that John Mark is including this is because he wants to help us reframe how we see wilderness periods in our life. Those times where things feel disorientating, confusing, where we feel we're not sure we're on the right path, where we don't always feel the very obvious, clear sound and hear the voice of God. Those times where we feel dry and alone and we feel fragile and weak, those wilderness times. What's so interesting, look at the phrase here, John appeared baptizing, that's drenching. It was the, it was the verb used for when ships sank they were baptized, or when cloth was put into dye for hours, it was drenched. Drenched, that he was baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. What he's saying is there is that the wilderness, in, in biblical terms, although not pleasant, was actually a place of grace. Wilderness was a place of grace. It wasn't a place to be ashamed of. It's not a place to try and run away from. Um, Josie and I were recently at a soul care retreat. Uh, we go to once a month. And they were talking about different sort of stages of the journey that you might be on. And I was like, man, in some ways, I so feel like in that transition, that wilderness period. And the key thing it said is, stay put. In big letters, stay put. Don't, don't do what we want to naturally do which is to get a helicopter out of the wilderness, is to do anything you can where you feel, because it's so uncomfortable. But God is at work. 
There's a baptism. There's a metaphor. There's a drenching that God was doing in the wilderness. It wasn't in Judea. It wasn't in the center of activity. It was in a place where things felt kind of disorientating and difficult and confusing. That was the very place where there was the hope of baptism, of repentance. And repentance just means to have a change of thinking. It's not all bad at all. Metanoia, repentance, means, oh, I thought that way, and now I'm seeing differently. Isn't that true? Anyone here? Just wave your hand. If you know those times where you felt like, man, I felt really stripped down, and it's been really difficult, but weirdly, when I look back on it, there was a kind of drenching of new ways of thinking that could only come through that. So friends, I want to encourage your hearts. If you feel like there's a bit of a wilderness in your life right now, for John and for Jesus and for David and for Moses and for Elijah and for the people of the, of the, of the Bible, wilderness is not to be something to be fearful of. Where is there a wilderness in your life now? Where is there an area that does not feel that comfortable? What kind of drenching might God be wanting to bring there? There is a a wilderness of power that God wants to bring. Fourthly, there's a wildness of power that you then see in the next verse here. Oh, and just to say with that final verse, just to piggyback actually what Hannah said, I love the fact that even though in this wilderness there is this baptism happening, I do love the fact that it says, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out. Isn't that interesting? This wilderness experience was not something that was unappealing for people. Deep down, people wanted to encounter God and have their thinking changed, even if it meant going into a place that felt different. For some of you, coming to a church, coming to this type of church, this, this is feeling very different to what you're used to. And I, I just want to honor you for having the courage because it doesn't feel normal or comfortable. But there's something in your guts that's like, oh, I, I feel like I'm meant to be here though. And I would say I commend you for that. Fourthly, almost there, uh, a wildness of power. I had to say this one. It was so much fun. Just look here in verse 6. One, I heard one of you comment on this. The thing that stood out to you was the description of John the Baptist's physical appearance. Now, the reason why it's there is a couple of things, I think. First of all, it's obviously alluding to a guy called Elijah, who had the same fashion sense. In the Old Testament, and he was a big deal in the Old Testament, and everyone was like, oh, we loved Elijah. He was amazing. I can't wait for Elijah to come back. And so there was this well-known anticipation that somehow Elijah would return and things would get great again, right? He was associated with hope and power and dynamism and things shifting and changing and the God of Israel being known as the true God. And so John here now is like, oh, ring any bells? Clearly, he has been, you know, sovereignly ordained to, to have like an echo of Elijah, which shows the consistency in the book. But I think there's no doubt. Just, again, think, think with me here. These Roman Christians, I don't know loads about Rome, I've got to be honest. But what I, what I do know about Rome is I think they were kind of into, like, order. And they were like this great military efficient power, right? I would struggle to think that naturally, if they heard about this John the Baptist guy, who's a bit of a wild man, that naturally they would go, oh, yeah, that's just like our culture. I think probably they would have been like, who? This guy sounds crazy. 
he sounds really different to what I would be used to. You know, the Roman gods of order and, and familiarity. But again, I think about that picture. I think of myself as one of those early Roman Christians hearing about this John the Baptist figure and the description that he was someone who was clothed in camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. Delicious. This guy, he is wild. So again, just to state the obvious, as you navigate following the Jesus way, there is a, there is a kind of invitation to accept and be ready for things to not be how you imagine they would be. This major figure who shaped the early church, who shaped the beginning of it, was pretty wild. So again, just to state the obvious, Christianity, you know, I mean, I love, I, I'm from an, uh, England. Um, we're quite a straight bunch, you know. We like things, we, we've got history and we like things done in a certain way. We're very orderly by nature. That's true of our, of our people, to be honest with you. The idea that to be a Christ follower means that there is a potential wildness that is kind of scary, but is actually really real. I had a dear friend of mine recently who's just come to Christ after many decades of not believing in Jesus. He's radically come to faith, and he had an encounter. Uh, He says a dream, the word dream does not do it justice. It really was an extraordinary and shocking encounter with a divine being. And he said it was so overwhelming, so extraordinary, that it meant that when he kind of came back out of this experience, earth felt a pretty drab place. He felt for the first time in his life, it just felt very black and white, and very kind of just like... And there was this longing that had been birthed through encounter this divine being of love. He said he, there was this, this moment where he just kind of... Sounds, sounds crazy, I know, but... He encountered something, someone, who embodied love itself. And he said, as he experienced this person, and, and the person I'm speaking about, by the way, is extremely clever, has a PhD, is a professor, he's a brilliant academic man, but he's also saying, like, he has experienced something that feels like some kind of divine encounter. Can I just say, the Church of Jesus Christ, we need to be ready for God to do things that are a bit wild. Amen? Please say amen a bit more energetically than that. Because is Jesus Christ alive and well? Yes. And if one day we're going to meet him, and honestly, depending on your age or you know, God's plan, that might be quite soon. When we meet him, and that won't be a negative thing, because Jesus is amazing. When you finally come face to face with the living God, suddenly you will realise, wow, God, didn't I put you in a little box? Even though this entire book is filled with story after story. And God, with a sense of humour, who makes donkeys talk to people in the Old Testament and does a lot of other stuff, he uses all things to to lift our faith. What might he do this week? There is a power that he wants these, these early Christians to experience. That when you think about your work, right, practically, Monday morning, when you think about the plans that you're developing, those are not wrong. But can I just charge you, in the presence of Jesus Christ, to bring them to the Lord, and say, Lord, is this the sum total of how you want me to work at this place and at this place? Or is there some divine insight or revelation or crazy genius plan that you want me to go for? Oh, God wants us to be a people who are drenched, drenched again and again with 
you know, repentance means a different way of thinking. I know I'm so guilty of just getting into my old ruts. This is what I do. This is what I do. I believe that God's saying, no, no, there is a wildness that needs to get into the fabric of the church of Jesus Christ again. It doesn't mean we're irresponsible. It doesn't mean that we're crazy. But what it does mean, like it says in the New Testament, it says that when they prophesied, such was the power that when people came in who didn't have a Christian faith, they felt and saw this gift of the Holy Spirit in such dynamic operation, they said, for surely God is in this place. Man, I, I, I want to be in a church like that, don't you? I want that. I want it to be that as my kids grow up, that the God was not just the person we refer to when we have our lasagna and we say, thank you God for this food. Although that's fine. I want it to be that we had adventures where impossible things actually happened. I want that. I don't want this to be like a story of strategy only. I want this to be a story of supernatural power. And I think that's what he's wanting to say to them. Yes, you're losing something. There's a disorientation. But friends, think about this amazing power. And finally, and with this we really will finish, and it it follows on. He talks about this baptism of power. That for John, he was baptizing in water. But he was saying, this is just a picture of what it is to meet Jesus. What is it to be a Christian? Well, it means that you have been and you will be again and again drenched, baptized, which is like a very dramatic metaphor, baptized in his power, filled with his power, you know, uh, overwhelmed and overcome with the very power of God. We live in a city that has got more clever people then I've got fingers to count. We live in, a, in an area where people are generally just outstanding brain-wise. You know, the power, the brain power, even in this room, is a wonderful thing. And I, and I thank God for that. However, one of the things I re- believe why God has brought us here is that we would be a people who, alongside mental, reasonable, rational thinking, is that we say, God, though, would you take that and set it on fire? Would you do something that you've done so many times? If you look at some of the greatest mathematicians and scientists who have shaped the Western Hemisphere, so many of them knew Jesus and loved Jesus and actually had incredible encounters with God, not just rational thoughts, but encounters that were kind of shocking and real. And I love this. This is is the genius of John Mark. He's saying, man, I know there's things that are changing. Things are shifting. Things are uncertain. Things are difficult in your life. But Jesus is still on the throne. And Jesus is a king who baptizes in spirit, not just in water. So we're going to stand to our feet. Kate's going to come back. And this morning, if you are like, man, Tom, I just feel like I would love to be prayed for to be filled with the Holy Spirit afresh. I just, we just want to, as we come to an end today, we want to just give you an opportunity to be prayed for, um, to be filled with the Holy Spirit afresh. You, honestly, my friends, you are designed to not be able to do your life, that's right, not be able to, unless you have the power of Jesus helping you. He will set you up so that you feel the impossibility of the things you're trying to do as a parent, in your singleness, in your workplace, as a friend. There's an impossibility to it that he wants you to feel so that you go, I need your help right now. Spirit of God, I need your help. 